So hello and thank you everyone for joining us for what I hope will be an interesting and informative discussion around some of the latest data in rheumatology. My name is Professor Peter Nash from the School of Medicine, Griffith University in Brisbane. Today, we're very fortunate to be joined by Professor Andrea Rubith-Roth, who is a doctor of rheumatology and internal medicine at the Canton Spital St. Gallen Hospital and University in Switzerland. Uh, thank you so much for giving up some time to join us. And today we're going to be talking about uh, one of your recent papers published in Rheumatology Therapy. And it looked at a very important and practical issue. The question of malignancy has been raised with the JAK inhibitors, particularly tofacitinib after the oral surveillance trial. And this is now looking at the incidence of malignancy across the upadacitinib clinical trial program for rheumatoid arthritis psoriatic arthritis, angst-spond, and non-radiographic axial spondylarthropathies. So first of all, welcome, Andrea. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for this invitation to, to join for, for this uh, podcast. So <clears throat> first of all, uh, we wish you a happy new year. And, and uh, we'd like to ask you about... The, the jack market in Switzerland, has it changed since oral surveillance? Has, has it had an effect on prescribing and the rheumatologist's general feeling about jack inhibitors? Well, Switzerland had a um, long-term experience with jack inhibitors, in particular tofacitinib, for quite a while, similar to the US. So I think that's different from other European countries. But of course, uh, the, the ongoing discussion has been irritating. It also is very demanding for doctors to talk to their patients uh, because, of course, patients are looking in the internet, finding uh, the, some, some comments on, on one or the other side effects. So I think the scene has changed, but still JAK inhibitors are being used quite frequently. And uh, in fact, from myself, I can tell that um, patients on JAK inhibitors that um, have been informed on the results of oral surveillance on some of the results from the um, from from the uh, from the auditors from Swiss Medic. Um, I cannot remember a single patient who said, "Well, I'm not going to take the JAK inhibitor anymore because of what has been reported." But I think it is an issue, and I think we have to face it and and speak clearly and frankly with the patient about it. And it certainly adds to that discussion, doesn't it, about what you have to say and what you don't have to say before you start therapy. You can scare people off if you're not careful. Has the EMA guidance of the over 65 and careful with this and careful with that and try other treatments first, has that affected how you prescribe JAKs in particular or how the Switzerland rheumatology community has to fit in with EMA rules? Well, the EMA is is um, formally not responsible for Switzerland. We do have Swiss uh -huh. medics, so um, I think it's something that the Swiss Swiss rheumatologists would just listen to. They just, uh, I mean, sort of have it as a guidance, but formally Swiss medic. But Swiss medic tends also to agree with FDA and and, and EMA, so it's not such a big difference. But but formally, I mean, Swiss rheumatologists are very liberal, I think, in general. So they're trying to make their, their own picture. And I, I think the discussions are quite helpful that are being conducted quite frankly 
um, to really see what what's going on and and to be honest uh, the issue of malignancy in a patient population for instance such as rheumatoid arthritis has always been an issue and um, you probably remember the long-term discussions going on on malignancy when using tnf inhibitors it's it's very similar and it doesn't really prevent people from from taking them but probably using all available treatments before putting patients on the jack inhibitor is usually not what rheumatologists would do, meaning, in fact, that you should use all five TNF inhibitors. So it means that eventually they will not work and, and it costs a lot of money before you, you switch to something else. And so tell us a little bit about why you did this particular study and then a little bit on how you did this particular study. Well, if you're doing clinical trials, and, and there has been a large phase three clinical trial program for abatacitinib, there is a mid-RR term saying malignancies. But in fact, we know from the biology of malignancy that they are really different from each other. There are some malignancy also depending on the patient population. We do have older data from the British register seeing how the frequency of different malignancies of different entities are in fact being seen in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. We know that there is a difference between female and male patients. We know that there are certain tumors that uh, tend to arise in, in the setting of immune suppression. So I think it's worth not only looking at malignancies at a group, but also to, to, to get more, inf more information on what type of malignancy and whether you can take any preventions. And it's, I think it's an important issue for patients in daily practice. Right. So, and the oral surveillance seemed to suggest that tofacitinib compared with the TNF comparators in a head-to-head event-driven study that wasn't particularly powered for malignancy. It was more a cardiovascular event-driven study and they put in patients with cardiovascular increased risk. There was an imbalance, and the numbers were really quite small. They were numerical, not statistically significant, but it raised an issue of lung cancer, and it raised um, issues um, that led to people examining uh, other JAK inhibitors because eupatacitinib is a JAK1 selective agent, tofacitinib more a pan-JAK inhibitor, maybe a JAK1-3. So, that's the background um, to look in this patient population if there was any signal. We know that with the UPA studies, sorry, with the TOFA studies, there was a non-melanoma skin cancer signal. So let's find out from you how you did this study. What groups did you look at? Well, there are, are two ways to look at it. First of all, different rheumatic diseases, as you just as you just mentioned, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and axial spondyloarthritis. Um, what was clearly seen in the study that the, the kind of malignancy and the incidence of malignancy was different in these three groups. For instance, there were just very, very few malignomas in patients with uh, axial spondyloarthritis. I mean, these are mainly significantly younger patients. Uh, there were also a separation of malignancy as a group without non-melanoma skin cancer and non-melanoma skin cancer. And um, so the way to look at it means that we do have data, for instance, for rheumatoid arthritis, for malignancy without non-melanoma skin cancer, and to compare it to the SEER database from the US to, to get a feeling of there is something more frequent or not. 
Um, but very clearly, I think we have to say that um, non-melanoma skin cancer was an issue. Um, it has been observed more frequently with ubatacitinib in comparison to the other treatment arms, namely aralimumab and metotrexate. So I think this is, seems to be a signal that stays. Um, we do also see non-melanoma skin cancer increased with TNF inhibitors, as we are all know, but, but in relation to each other, it seems to be more frequent, which, which clearly means that this is something we can do, that we do send our patients uh, on an annual base to a dermatologist. And, and I'm pretty sure in Australia, uh, giving the sun exposure, and, and I, this is something you're, you know, and you're perfect in doing this, and, and uh, improving prevention, I think. That's a key issue. Right. Exactly with the skin cancer capital of the world. So we're very all over this. So you took patients from the different trials, and the strength of the study, I think you had at least a median of four-year follow-up because some of these cancers take time to show themselves. You had something like uh, 14,000 patient years of follow-up and you had not, not just the two UPA doses, 15 and 30, but you had about 1,000 patients on Humira, Adalimumab, about 300 on methotrexate as comparators. Um, so <clears throat> tell us a little bit about... Um, what malignant seizure looked for and how were they picked up? And was there some statistical analysis that was required and maybe explain the, the SEER um, measure and maybe explain the treatment emergent adverse events? Well, the, the most frequent malignancies overall, the rate of malignancy was comparable with, with UPA compared to Aralimumab and metrotrexate. So that's the overall good news. Um, looking at the different entities, breast cancer and lung cancer was most frequently being observed in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. And I think that's not really surprising because lung cancer is the most frequent malignancy in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Also in patients who are being treated with conventional DMATs. We know that. We also know that smoking is an issue. It's a risk factor both for, for CCP positive rheumatoid arthritis as well as for, for lung cancer. So there may be a common pathway. In fact, we also know that patients with rheumatoid arthritis um, are in pr pretty much like 70 something or 80% female and breast cancer is the most frequent malignancy in female patients. I think the numbers at the moment were that one out of nine patient, female patients experiences um, breast cancer in her lifetime. And this is pretty much also the age group of the, the mean age group in the RA trials is something like 50 plus 55 or so, which is also identical with a, with a high risk group for, for breast cancer. So I think this is fitting quite together. I think it explains why we do see breast cancer. It also explains um, why, why lung cancer is something that's also on the horizon. For on contrast, for psoriatic arthritis, which is more like a balanced male-female patient population, we do see melanoma, we do see, which is also known that psoriatic arthritis patients have an increased risk, and colorectal cancer. So the picture changes a little bit with the disease entity, and that's why I think it's good to have the overall picture, but also to look at different diseases and uh, in, in practical, it means 
that if you know that for your daily practice, for your patients, this is what you recommend to your patients with regard to breast cancer, quite clear for female patients uh, on an immunosuppressive treatment, they need to be seen regularly by, um, by a breast cancer unit um, to do uh, ultrasound, mammography, and so on. Um, so, so getting the information doesn't mean that you should scare the patients, but rather um, advise the patients how to best use the preventions that are available. So with the lung cancer, were you able to capture smoking data? Were you able to show that there was a difference that was driven by smoking, current smoking? Uh, there were well in in fact what we what we did see um that mainly looking at the risk factors for for the malignancy there was very clearly a signal for smoking not only for lung cancer but overall also for non-melanoma skin cancer alcohol and age and primarily <laughs> male patients so i think this is the picture get, getting back to oral surveillance, as you just mentioned in the beginning, which also shows that, that elderly men are at particular risk for experiencing both malignancy as well as cardiovascular events. And everyone's always very interested in lymphoma and any novel therapy, a lot of methotrexate background. Did you see any lymphoma signal or any lymphoma differences? Definitely not. We know that lymphoma as well as Hodgkin's lymphoma do have a signal in RA. And there were only very few cases with lymphoma picked. Um, with regard to the MedArray database, they sometimes um, claim somebody as having lymphoma, but in fact, it's a lymphocyte abnormality on the blood smear. Um, and if you take that out, there is definitely no lymphoma signal, at least in that database. Well, that's very reassuring. Was there any dose dependency between 15 and 30 milligrams with any of the malignancies? Well, with regard to non-melanoma skin cancer, it was clearly more frequent in patients with a higher dose. Um, so I think overall, it's a good reason to go for the lower dose, at least for our rheumatic diseases. I, I know it's different in uh, inflammatory bowel disease, but this is also, once again, a different patient population. So I think for our patients, um, it, it's quite, it makes sense to use a lower dose, which is, I, I think, apparently sufficient. And looking at the efficacy data, comparing the two different doses of ubatositinib, there was not that huge difference between 15 and 30, but there is a signal for non-melanoma skin cancer with 30 milligrams. So go to the 15 milligrams is uh, probably uh, appropriate. Fair enough. And as you've already highlighted, um, we're very, we see increased rates of non-melanoma skin cancer with methotrexate. We see it with TNFs. We see it with many immunosuppressants, cyclosporin, azathioprine, mycophenolate, et cetera. So uh, we just have to be vigilant and not ignore that particular issue. Um, it begs the question about um, any other conclusions from the results that you would suggest to the clinician apart from thinking about prevention? What kind of take-home messages would you suggest to the clinician? Well, I, I, I would suggest, and, and very clearly, this is data derived from clinical trials. So I think it's clearly a different patient population than oral surveillance. We have to take that into account. 
uh, we will not have an oral surveillance study with you, but a CityNIP for, for different reasons. It's also quite clear. But the data that we have, and it is a really huge database, more than 15,000 patient years. We do have data from, from different disease entities. We will get more data also from patients with atopic dermatitis and inflammatory bowel disease, that there is no specific malignancy issue signal thus far with Upacitinib, apart from the non-melanoma skin cancer, which, as you just mentioned, is not unique for a, for a JAK inhibitor, but rather an issue with all um, available immunosuppressants. And I was interested in the PSA population. Is UVA Hoover treatment commonly done in Switzerland anymore? Because they found TNFs plus PUVA 14 times higher skin cancer rates. Right. And I wonder if there was PUVA plus JAK data available. Is it used much in Switzerland? Because our derms tell us they stop using UVA and they use UVB. Yeah, well, my my impression is, but I do not formally have to have the data that uh, it's more frequently being done in Germany than in Switzerland. In Switzerland, we have a lux the, the luxury system that allows us to use biologics in in patients with psoriasis, psoriatic arthritis, and rheumatoid arthritis relatively early. Um, so this means that also the dermatology colleagues that they use biologics and, and in particular with, with biologics such as NTL17, NTL23, you don't need Hoover anymore. Right. And so having looked at this data with this particular Jack, what's your interpretation of the surveillance data? Do you think um, you, there is a difference between TNFs and Jacks as far as malignancy is concerned? Well, the ORIT surveillance patient population is a very unique patient population. Um, for instance, the, the countries in Middle Europe, Switzerland, Germany have, have not been included in all surveillance. Um, the, the, the patients have been erosive more than 90%, not using statins without having significant cardiovascular risk. So this is something to take into account. And in particular, with regard to malignancy, I'm pretty sure that patients are doing much better if they benefit from a healthcare system that is available for doing prevention, such as breast cancer, such as colorectal, such as non-melanoma skin cancer. And this is something we don't know, whether the patients from all surveillance also have the privilege to take part in those prevention programs. Um, the, the the way the patient's long-term disease, only few of them had had biologics before, suggests that they did not have an, an optimized healthcare system to take care of them. And, and also the very low proportion of patients using statin. I can only guess it's it's, it's sort of looking, looking at the baseline characteristics of this patient population. But I think we have to take the issue serious. Um, it also tells us that um, probably a preventive measures for cardiovascular as well as for malignancy as something that are even more important than we currently tend to think. Okay, so just to finish, a couple of really practical questions. If you've got a patient with a recent history of malignancy, which is not uncommon now, they say 1% of people over 50 or 60 have a history of malignancy, would you use a jack? or would you go for other biologics first? 
Um, so if there was a scenario that it is the first time to use a biologic or a jack, I think we do have really good data for the TNF inhibitors that there seem, does not seem to be an issue with previous malignancy. There are two malignancy where I would personally try to avoid a biologic or a jack. This is breast cancer and melanoma. Given the data that these these tumors seem to be pretty much depending on the immune system. Others seem to be less dependent. Um, however, what we learn these days from the use of checkpoint inhibitors, that the checkpoint inhibitors seem to work in, in, in a large number of malignancies. So I'm not quite sure whether the concept is still valid, but probably uh, this is something that we need to talk to the patient. We know that the longer the time period to the malignancy um, passes by, the lower is the risk. Um, some patients won't take the risk at all, so this would be a scenario of using conventional uh, uh, combination treatment. Other patients where uh, the rheumatic disease is very dominant and they just say, well, help me with this and uh, I don't care with the rest. I think it may be an individualized decision and it's difficult to find a solution for all of them. Excellent. And another very practical issue if someone is doing brilliantly on a therapy, either a biologic or a JAK, and develop a malignancy while they're on the therapy. So what's your advice? How do you manage that particular difficult situation? Do you stop treatment? Do you get them treated and continue treatment? What's your advice? I, I would stop treatment. To, to be honest, I stop treatment for, for most of the malignancies that we, we, uh, we have today, for instance, breast cancer. The patients will very likely undergo chemotherapy. And, and if a patient's undergo chemotherapy, uh, you're, you're pretty safe on the side of, of the inflammatory arthritis. Um, we do have a different scenario these days that is becoming more and more challenging. That's a scenario that a patient needs a checkpoint inhibitor and has a, a underlying rheumatic diseases. And this is quite a challenge. There has been a, a, a nice paper from uh, Anna Bass from, from uh, I think from, from New York. They have been comparing outcome with anti-IL-6 TNF inhibitors and metotrexate, where the metotrexate, in fact, doesn't look that bad. Um, the question is, in fact, are these different patient populations who receive the biologic versus metotrexate only? Um, but I think this really needs the balanced individualized decision, depending on the tumor, depending on the set setting, um, to, to cope with the side effects. So the patient we talked about developed a malignancy, you stopped treatment, they got the chemotherapy, they got the radiotherapy, they often use steroid, which they stop suddenly. And then when the treatment's over, they flare badly. Any practical suggestions on what to recommence for their flaring rheumatoid? Oh, I, I think it's a hard it's a hard decision. I mean, using corticosteroids for for a brief time period is is probably something that's very easy to do. But speaking about a, um, the introduction of a long term immunosuppression immunomodulator just right after finishing. Uh, um, finishing oncology treatment, I would try to get some time to, uh, for, I mean, but that's more like, like a gut feeling that to say, I wouldn't start right away with a JAK inhibitor when the chemotherapy is over. Um, I think we do not have enough data and probably will not have enough data to really look for that because it, it's not going to, going to be a question with an answer within a clinical trial, I'm afraid. 
Yes, it's very tricky, but I've had patients beg to go back on their old therapy, no matter <laughs> what the risk is. So I agree you have to individualise your choice. So thank you very much for um, uh, helping us with this very tricky but very practical situation. Um, your paper can be uh, freely uh, examined and downloaded and slide sets available from the uh, IMID website, Immune, Immune Mediated Inflammatory Disease website, which will you can get the publication and the slide sets at imidforum.com. Uh, we appreciate Andrea's time and for this very interesting paper on a practical issue. Please subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or iTunes or other podcast media. Let us know what you think. Give us some feedback. Also, you can follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn and Facebook to keep up with the latest and the newest IMID content coming soon in 2024, where we're expanding from just cytokines to all immune-mediated diseases and not just rheumatoid, but also connective tissue diseases, vasculitis, etc. So thank you very much. We appreciate your time, Andrea, thank and you. hope you have a lovely day. Thank you. Goodbye.